The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. It is your old friend, Justin Robert Young, joining you on this September 16th edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. We've got a lot to talk about. I know that the name of this podcast would suggest that all we talk about are the various elements of politics, but... There are parts of these political elements that do indeed intersect with other elements of our society. And so we're going to put on our eye black. We're going to get our hand in the dirt because, folks, there's a college football conversation we have to have. And I think it might matter in the general election. I'll explain that in a second. Is Donald Trump going to face a stare down with the China Hawks on his TikTok deal. And a little bit later, a conversation about the digital avenues that not only Donald Trump, but also previous presidents have used to connect directly with the public. We begin this introduction, however, with a grim milestone and one for which many of you have asked me to revisit. Today, we are going to pass 200,000 people who have died from the COVID-19 virus. Months and months and months ago, I asked you guys to write down on a piece of paper a number. A number for which you believed would die of the coronavirus. Now, I will admit that at the point that I asked you guys to do this exercise, and this was during the initial shutdown of March and April, in my mind, I was assuming this was going to be something that would be around for, say, three months. I was optimistic about this. I was optimistic about the idea that we would be back to normal. The virus has proven me wrong on that. And indeed, as we see spiking cases in Europe again, I do believe that regardless of what you, what grade you would give the United States federal government and how they handled this, the COVID-19 virus is on, on the more pernicious side of any kind of early understanding. Very often there are elements to these kinds of pandemics as I have tried to read up about them that you know tend to work in your favor. Very deadly viruses tend to burn out faster. But man, this COVID-19 is something else. And, and no matter how much you put a clamp on it, uh, it very much has a way of seeping out of the edges. I wonder how we are going to handle 200,000 dead. More specifically, I wonder whether or not 200,000 dead will get as much attention as a four anonymous source story in the Atlantic 
or whatever garbage the president has decided to retweet. Because I do think this is a bigger deal. This is a milestone. And I'll tell you why it's a milestone. And if I'm the only person to tell you this, then shame on the rest of the media. 200,000 is a milestone because it was at the upper end of the estimation of what Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks told the nation we should expect. At that time, I thought that if Donald Trump came in under 120,000, which was the low end, that he would be able to crow that he did a good job. Well, we're over 200,000. That's the line. Now, cases are slowing down. Deaths are stubbornly plateaued. So we don't know exactly how farther past 200,000 we are going to get. There are at least optimistic signs that this flu season might not be what it would have been otherwise because of a international push for people to social distance and wear masks, which would be rare good news in this, the year of our Lord 2020. But still, by the White House's own guidance, 200,000 was the high end of what we expected. And now we're going to be past it. And I wonder if it gets as much attention as The Atlantic. I do. I wonder if it gets as much attention as Woodward. I wonder if it gets as much attention of all of of, of the boat parade where a boat sank in Austin. You know, when I decry media stories, it's often not because I think that they're not relevant at all. I think that they should be appropriately relevant. I think this is very relevant. Because by and large, I think that we have sunk into this idea. We have sunk into the idea that COVID is a biblical flood. And on some level, I think that there is a freedom to that. There's a freedom to say, no, this is more like a hurricane. This is more like a tornado. This is something that just comes in and sweeps through and and if, it is the 1918 great influenza and we have 300,000 dead compared to the 650,000 dead that we had in 1918. Then that's what a hundred years of medical science will buy you 300,000 lives. I think that that's a, a mindset that is set that is, uh, you know, sunk into people. And, and even as we, we move forward with this election both parties, to a certain extent, have understood that it's go time now. The Biden campaign isn't going to shut down what little campaigning they are doing now. I don't think so. They've got to keep going. The nation, to a certain extent, has moved on because they don't want to go back to April and May. They don't want to shut down again. And I don't know what that says. I, I don't know if this is just one of those difficult situations that we have to face or if it is yet another sign of stubborn American arrogance. But I do know this. We're looking to the horizon. We're not looking back. And if this is a show about politics, then I can prove it by showing you the fact that both parties are out there doing stuff. Now, one party might make a big deal about this. The other party won't. 
but it's still a part of our conversation, including the fun and games, which is where we go in our But First! Good morning. Sources have confirmed that the Big Ten is expected to announce this morning that football is back. Big Ten football coming back in mid-October. For those who are just joining us, Heather, catch everyone up on how we got here. On August 11th, they announced that they will not play, and they were talking about a spring season. Here we are about a month later. How did we get from there to here? We want to get football in colleges. These are young, strong people. They won't have a big problem with the China virus. The White House is has, this is the first time also in my lifetime, I can remember health experts being, and what they're saying, being suppressed in favor of political messages. You have to have a governor, because, you know, right now, Michigan's lagging. Great football, great coach, great team. We want a governor, John James, that's going to let Michigan play Big Ten football this year. Strap on your pads, nerds. It's time for sports, sports, sports. And now your host, Justin Robert Young. It's 11.14 in the morning. NBA playoffs. Big block by Bam Adebayo last night. And I, and I got to say, I think that uh, Doc Rivers, you know, he's going to get fired. What a bum. Kawhi Leonard. Just just disgraceful. Disgusting. Well, we start now. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> I get my, I get my, 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 my political one mic radio, not my sports one mic radio. <laughs> Big Ten matters. Big Ten football matters. Big Ten football matters in this election. Now, a lot of you guys who listen to this aren't into sports. I get it. But let me explain to you why Big Ten football matters. There are five power conferences in college athletics, and there is no bigger college athletic activity than men's football. Those conferences are the Atlantic Coast Conference, which includes teams from the Northeast to Florida. They're playing. Southeastern Conference. This is all the Bible Belt, right? This is Alabama, Mississippi, blah, blah, blah. The Big 12. Now, this is also kind of the South. Texas, Oklahoma. But the two that aren't playing are the Big 10 and the Pac-12. Who are the biggest teams in the Pac-12? USC, University of Southern California. Uh, University of California at Berkeley, right? The Bears. Washington Huskies. Uh, Not exactly swing states, right? Arizona Sun Devils, maybe, maybe. Wildcats, Arizona Wildcats, Arizona State Sun Devils. Sorry to all my Arizona State fans. But the Big Ten, let me just read you off some of these schools here in the Big Ten. There's the University of 20 Electoral Votes Illini. The University of 10 Electoral Votes Badgers. 
the 16 electoral votes Wolverines. Oh, the big, the big, mighty 18 electoral votes Buckeyes. And how about those 20 electoral vote Nittany Lions? Oh, wait, sorry. I got mixed up. That's the University of Illinois Illini, the Wisconsin Badgers, the Michigan Wolverines, the Ohio State Buckeyes, and the Penn State Nittany Lions. What have we spent the last four years talking about? What did we spend the Democratic primary discussing? White, working class voters in the Rust Belt. Obama to Trump voters. And guess what? A lot of them are men. And a lot of those men in those states, in Ohio and in Michigan, where professional sports, specifically professional football, has been an abomination for a generation plus, guess who they root for? The University of Michigan and Ohio State. They are religions in that part of the country. They are economies for those cities. The idea that they will play, even if they're going to play without fans, is something that matters. Now, let's get into the political ramifications. Joe Biden also trying to speak to these voters, because again, in the Democratic primary, you pick Biden because he's the one that can talk to these guys. He ran on, Trump is why you're not playing football right now. Trump is why. Trump is why you are not watching the Wolverines. Trump is why Ohio State, which looks like it could be one of the best teams in the country, will not be suiting up. So you want to be upset? You should be upset. Blame the man who caused it, Donald Trump. Donald Trump says, hey, look, coronavirus happens. Guess what? We should still play. And he has buoying him, at least right now, the idea that non-bubble experiments like Major League Baseball, despite some hiccups, has gone on. People are playing college football games now. Specifically in the ACC, and the SEC is going to start up in the next week. So the question then became for the Big Ten, do we sit out until the spring? Donald Trump personally intervened. Donald Trump personally called the commissioner. Donald Trump today took a victory lap. Great news. Big Ten football is back. All teams to participate. Thank you to the players, coaches, parents, and all school representatives. Have a fantastic season. It was my great honor to have helped. Three exclamation points. If you don't think he is going to get an applause line every time he's in Wisconsin, Michigan, Oh, Minnesota. Sorry, wait, I, I almost I almost forgot. I almost forgot about the 10 electoral votes Golden Gophers. Almost forgot about them. If you win the Big Ten, you win the election. Just that simple. 
and in a sub 50 days to go to the election situation that we're in right now, I have a hard time thinking that being the guy who brought back Big Ten football isn't going to be more impactful, at least in those battleground states, than the Access Hollywood tape. That's amorphous. This is local. This matters. Giving everybody their feel-good back on Saturday afternoons, even if they can't go, even if it's just so they can all get together with their friends and do what they've done every fall since they were kids, I think that does matter. I honestly do. Now, will it all come crashing down if a coronavirus outbreak totally takes out the Ohio State football team and somebody dies? Yes. <laughs> yes, that will. That indeed will. And then, much like he was right earlier in the summer, Joe Biden can say, this is why you don't do a football season during a pandemic. But for right now, it is something that I, in, in, in the world of everything being tagged to matter X amount, I think this does move the needle. How much, I don't know. But I'll tell you this, according to the Real Clear Politics average, uh, Wisconsin, Biden is up by 6.7 points. Pennsylvania, 4.3. Ohio, 2.4. Michigan, 4.2. That means entering the fourth quarter of this re-election bid, if Donald Trump is trying to win the exact same coalition of states that put him in the White House, he is within one touchdown of doing so. One more sports take. I do want to get one more sports take out because I, I've already set up a sports thing. I'm very excited for the fact that the NFL has a Washington football team. If you haven't followed this story, they were for years and years and years, decades and decades, called the Washington Redskins. Because 2020 is crazy, they decided to go with the Washington football team. They finally backed down on the name. They're the Washington football team. And the owner of that team, Daniel Snyder, is one of the worst owners in sports. He has said that that might be their permanent name. Now, I know that a lot of you are rolling your eyes, but here's why you need to care if you're listening to a politics podcast. Every politician in D.C. is a bandwagon fan of those local teams. The Washington Capitals, the Washington Wizards, the Washington Nationals, and the old Redskins, now the football team. Can you imagine how funny... It's going to be when earnestly a politician has to tweet, great game by the football team. <laughs> it's like made in a lab. Like if we all imagine politicians on some level to be like robotic Stepford wives and husbands, imagine how funny it's going to be when they're literally like, great game by the Washington football team. It'll be like their, their programming was glitching. 
I don't know why I find this funny. If you also find this funny, please let me know. Also, Heat and Four. So here's some more sticky terrain for Donald Trump. He has, along with Joe Biden, been very, very, very hard on China lately. A bipartisan sentiment for China has fallen through the basement. Nobody thinks China's a friend anymore. They either think that they are an out-and-out adversary or somebody that we should not be dealing with in the same way that we dealt with them before. And so things that would otherwise be fringe for China hawks, like banning apps that are run from China, now become mainstream. And so Donald Trump made a executive order saying that TikTok needed to be sold. I talked about the ins and outs of this a little bit more on the PX3 Extra, but the parent company for TikTok, ByteDance, based in China, faced a bit of a uphill road in their sale because the Chinese government said, no, you're not allowed to sell the algorithm that runs TikTok which if you've ever used the app, is crucial. It's not even just for recommending videos in the way that an algorithm is used for recommending videos on YouTube or recommending posts on Facebook. The algorithm is TikTok. You open that app and it just starts throwing you videos and then based on how long you stay on those videos, it feeds you more videos. So without the algorithm, you don't have an app, effectively. This meant uh, problems because Microsoft initially wanted to buy ByteDance and then ByteDance said, okay, well, we can't sell the algorithm and also we're not going to choose you. Instead, we are going to choose Oracle. Oracle will not buy the app. Oracle, Oracle will not rebuild the app from scratch. Oracle will instead house all the data that comes in on the app on American servers that can be overlooked by American federal agencies. That allegedly is the big reason why Trump wants to have TikTok sold, is that they don't want American data going back to China. Well, what I went into more detail on in, in the PX3 Extra was whether or not this idea would sell. The cherry on top is that the guy who runs Oracle is Larry Ellison. Larry Ellison is a Trump supporter. So would you feel better about it not being sold outright if the guy who controls the data wears a MAGA hat? Can I interest you in a MAGA hat guard? Maybe? I told everybody on that extra that if you wanted to see how this is going, watch one man, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. And you were rewarded if you followed my lead because indeed, Hawley himself came out and said this was a terrible deal and that the U.S. government should reject it. That would lead to a staring contest because the United States would then effectively shut down TikTok. If China's not willing to sell the algorithm, that means that it's over. 
That means TikTok just goes away. Meanwhile, Donald Trump's right-hand man, Steve Mnuchin, Secretary of the Treasury, was kind of selling the deal on cable news, saying, well, you know, it'll be a trusted tech partnership. That's actually the exact same language that China uses when American companies come to do business in China. Every U.S. company needs a trusted tech partner to make sure that Chinese interests are served. So that's likely why they were able to make that deal. ByteDance was able to make that deal. And also that TikTok Global would be housed in the United States, creating up to 20,000 jobs. Now, that would make it among the most staffed tech companies in existence in America. You know, more than Twitter and Uber. But hell, dare to dream, right? Keep an eye on Hawley. Keep an eye on Mnuchin and keep an eye on Hawley. Because at some point, Donald Trump is going to have to choose exactly how about this China life he wants to be. Is he willing to shut down TikTok to lock eyes with Xi and say, nope, we told you to sell, sell. Selling means the algorithm. Or does he take the win? Does he say, look, this was always about data. We've got a data solution. That's the deal. That's the deal. And it's even better that the guy doing it has a Trump flag. That makes me feel a lot easier about it. And then at that point, if that is the route that we go down, where does Hawley go? Because friends, don't think that I have taken my eye off the real ball. 2024. Guess who wants to inherit that MAGA audience if Donald Trump does win? People like Senator Josh Hawley. We are 48 days when I record this. Closer if you hear it after Wednesday until the election. Yeah, baby! This is it. This is it. This is the time where every little thing matters. This is the time where every little flub is a big deal. This is the time where we get to pick apart the fact that Joe Biden just got up to a uh, Hispanic meeting in Florida and, and instead of having opening remarks, played Despacito off his phone. Not a joke, look it up. If you want that kind of eye on this election, if you want this kind of analysis four days a week until we find our next president of the United States, well, there's only one place you need to go, and that is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Now's the time to do it. Like, honestly, this is it. Head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Go ahead and get on the $3 club. Get your custom RSS feed. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that it has your name in it or you get to, you know, put some nickname or whatever on it. No, 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 no. You get to put it in the podcatcher of your choice. It's just a regular RSS feed. 
but it means that you get not only these episodes earlier than they normally go up on Apple and Spotify, just because that process takes longer, and this is direct to you, but you also get the two bonus episodes. Yeah, one on Monday, one on Thursday. When stuff breaks, you guys get it first if it's not right before a Wednesday or not right before a Friday. I'm thrilled that you guys support me at this level, and I think there's going to be a few more of you that is going to get on the uh, get on the train before we get into our final month. God, we're so close to the final month. Oh, can you feel it? TakePoliticsSeriously.com. My guest today is Joshua Skako. He is an associate professor of political communication at the University of South Florida. He's got a forthcoming book with Dr. Kevin Coe at the University of Utah entitled The Ubiquitous Presidency, Presidential Communication and Digital Democracy in Tumultuous Times, which will be published by Oxford University Press early next year. Find him on Twitter at Josh Skako or find him right here. Welcome to the show, Josh. Hey, thanks for having me, Justin. I appreciate you uh, you invite me in today. One of the fascinations that I have in general is journalism and communication, but specifically how much things have changed with the advent of digital communication. And there is no greater, or should I say, louder example of that uh, in terms of how media has changed uh than our president's use of digital communication. So let me ask you this, from your perspective, is there anything prior to Donald Trump's Twitter and Facebook accounts that even compares to the kind of influence that they have had on not only culture, but media? Yeah, that's a tough question to answer, but uh, I think one of the key one of the key trends we need to look at is the ways in which presidents have been attempting to do what Donald Trump attempts to do via Twitter and via social media before these platforms really came into use. And one of the things we one of the things we explore in the book is really not just Donald Trump, but what leads up to Donald Trump. And so there are, in a lot of ways, watermarks of this approach that you would see, for example, in Bill Clinton's presidency. And in Bill Clinton's presidency, his White House is the first one to go on online um, with a White House website. Uh, and, and so it inaugurates that particular approach, but more so as well, the types of outreach that Bill Clinton and George W. Bush did in terms of using not only the available digital means of technology, but also more under the radar things. For example, local radio interviews with particular uh, with particular constituencies. One of the things we find in the book is that Bill Clinton uh, talked quite a bit to uh, local local radio stations, particularly local radio stations targeted at. Uh, at black and brown communities. And you saw similarly in George W. Bush's presidency as well. Um, he continued some similar approaches that we see there. So there are there's that approach that we document into the book. And then what we see is really the Obama presidency is where this takes off, 
where you have uh, Barack Obama regularly using Twitter and Facebook uh, and YouTube and beginning the really the explosion of places um, and topics where the president is and what they're talking about. And so one of the things we come away with in the book is understanding that to understand Donald Trump's approach to communication, you have to understand Barack Obama. And in many ways, Donald Trump is the communicative heir to what Barack Obama did. So let's let's dive into that a little bit, because in my sense of how Obama used digital technology, the the big hallmark was he was the first and his campaign specifically was the first big data scraper like they with with the rise of Facebook hitting critical mass at the point that uh, that that he was in office. He was mm-hmm. able to not only then and, and this was back when, you know, talking about Facebook data was a cool and hip thing to do as opposed to right. a troubling right. democracy uh, uh, eroder. But mm-hmm. but the yeah. idea that they could brag about like targeting the person on the block that they need to convince because they can track uh, uh, who needs to be uh, who's going to flip the entire neighborhood if they change their opinion or if they put a yard sign out. Uh, whereas in terms of communication as in broadcasting, mm-hmm. it felt to me at least that Obama had. Yes, he had a Twitter Yes, he had a fa- a Facebook, but the quotes or the communications that he was giving were not at all dissimilar from what his official press statements would yeah. be or or yeah. his very polished speeches would be, which is not the language of Facebook and Twitter. Right. Yeah, absolutely, Justin. I think what you're getting at is um, we have a very academic research term uh, that I talk about with the stu- with my students. It's called media logics. And essentially, it's the idea that we adapt to the media technology available to us. And in turn, media technology shapes the culture around us. And so one of the things we look at in the book is in thinking about we compare Barack Obama to Donald Trump, particularly around we looked at the ways in which uh, both presidents drove Twitter attention to themselves. And we looked at Twitter conversation around uh, around each of these presidents. And so we looked at multiple millions of tweets uh, and we analyzed them to see what were those instances in which uh, mentions and conversations around Barack Obama spiked during his presidency. And those mention and those instances where uh, conversation on Twitter around Donald Trump spikes. And one of the things we find, and it actually, you've you've posed a really fantastic kind of question to think about here that we actually go after in the book of the big difference between, one of the big differences we find between the Obama and Trump presidencies on Twitter is that Barack Obama's Twitter attention, those moments where the conversation was greatest with Barack Obama were primarily driven by very traditional forms of communication, speeches that he gave like the State of the Union or other types of press conferences. So essentially what you had was you had people going across platforms, seeing him in one setting and then talking about him in another. Whereas with Donald Trump, 
the what you find is that his Twitter attention is primarily driven by his Twitter. Yeah. Um, and his tweets. So you do see that kind of change. And that's part of the reason why I think it's important to understand the Obama presidency. And we go into it quite a bit in the book of thinking about the ways in which it had it did innovate in the field of presidential communication. But it also served as as this transition in some ways to the approach that Donald Trump has done as well. And you've seen that in the Trump presidency, he has dialed back considerably more traditional forms of presidential address. I'll give you one example here. Uh, one of the big one of the big consequences of these new approaches of presidential communication is we rarely see presidents now talking to us from the Oval Office. Uh, that yeah. big primetime address that interrupts, you know, maybe someone's favorite show on CBS or NBC on a Wednesday night. We rarely see that. We saw that, though, actually, um, now six months ago at this point, I believe it was March 11th, uh, right as things were beginning to get very serious with the coronavirus, Donald Trump addresses the nation from the Oval Office. And one of the things and one of the effects of that is pretty universally the speech is seen as a big failure. Um, it doesn't calm the mar markets. The futures markets collapse during his speech. Um, and individuals who are watching it, press coverage overwhelmingly says it didn't seem like it rose to the moment. However, I think the big important point here is that Donald Trump is not accustomed to speaking in that type of format. And therefore, he does not come off as authentic in that type of format as well. So that is one of the consequences that we will probably see going forward is that presidents will come to us less from those traditional formats. Now, obviously, they'll do the State of the Union and those and those types of addresses still. But we will probably see less of those prime time addresses in favor of other particular approaches that they might deem will give them better leverage. I almost wonder if that's just the natural order of things, though. Because if if you think about it, the idea of the Oval Office address was a, a television construct when television was king. It's it's mm -hmm. a set. It is designed time-wise to be something that is palatable to all the major networks being able to cut their programming. And so that's why we think of it at the length that we think of it. So if television isn't king anymore, why are we going to hold on to this relic of it? Yeah, I think that that's a great point, particularly with um, one of the key things that, you know, we focused on in this research so much is that presidential communication had to adapt. It had to change. And the reason why it had to change is because we document over the course of really the last hundred years of, pr of presidential public communication. Um, where the president does give public speeches because we have to we have to think about the fact that this is this period that we're in this past hundred a little over a hundred years where presidents directly talk to the public is actually the um, goes against the norm in American history. It was not acceptable for the president of the United States to directly talk to the public. In fact, it was one of the things that the founders guarded against. And I, you know, I don't want to give a, you know, history lesson to everyone here, but <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't want to put anyone to sleep out there. But suffice it to say that the founders were very concerned about this. They were very concerned about demagoguery. They were very concerned about the president inciting the masses. And so safeguards were put in place constitutionally 
so that the president was elected indirectly, those types of things. Congress was actually made in some ways more powerful. Um, and what we've seen is with the advent particularly of mass media, the, the script is flipped. So what we have is we have the president being able to go public. And you know, just a side note here, um, I always tell my students that when um, Andrew Johnson, President Andrew Johnson, um, the the guy who comes after Abraham Lincoln, and basically um, and basically screws up all the progress that post-war America is trying to make with Reconstruction in the South, um, he goes on a speaking tour, and one of the things he does during that speaking tour is he actually calls for the death of a member of Congress on this speaking tour. Oh, jeez. Yeah, he. Um, I believe, uh, I believe it was Thaddeus Stevens um, calls for the death of a member of Congress, and in turn, what Congress does is we have to remember Andrew Johnson's then impeached. Um, he's not convicted, but he's impeached. Um, that speech and that communication, his public communication, is used as one of the articles of impeachment against him. That he um, called for. I mean, you know, that's out of bounds. I think. I think even in 2020, right. we can agree that that's dirty pool. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, it illustrates in some ways, though, not only was that communication extreme, also that it was unprecedented for the president to even think about engaging the public directly. Um, yeah. So that is something that we have to uh, think about here. So. Mass media brings the public to us. So really the past hundred years of what we're talking about here, presidents have had three enduring goals. They need to be visible, they have to control their message, and they have to adapt to circumstances. What has changed is the context in which they do that. As you said, Justin, television audiences aren't what, aren't, aren't what they once were 20, 30 years ago. And audiences are scattered now. And so what that means is presidents are now following their audiences and they're following their audiences into the settings, including non-political settings where, um, where their audiences are. It's partly the reason why we continue to have these conversations about um, politicians that need to stay in their lane and not talk about sports and sports figures who need to stay in their lane and not talk about politics. And the reason why is because audiences are so scattered now that to reach those audiences, political leaders have to go into non-political spaces. And so by doing that, then they have to talk about a wider range of topics. Can I, uh, this is semi, it's certainly adjacent to it, but as somebody who studies these trends, is there a moment that you can think of when Twitter stopped covering television and television started covering Twitter? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Cause like I, I, I I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm tempted to say it was Trump because that yeah. was the first time where I can remember a a ongoing story, a, an infinite story, a story with no end that was just a Twitter account. And and sure. it was Trump as a candidate mm -hmm. setting the tone for doing it. Um but it's I I I I would I would I I'd be open to other other suggestions, but I I almost I don't know. I, I kind of feel like even though there is, I, I'm very deeply fascinated with a lot of these undercurrents 
yeah. I do on some level can't help but think that I've talked so much about Donald Trump's Twitter account that now I'm overrating <laughs> it. Like, like yeah. that, that it can't be this important. Like it can't be this endless source of fascination while at the same time it, it is kind of what FDR was to radio and what Kennedy was to television. There was just like every once in a while there is a man for a medium and Donald Trump is Twitter. Right. So one of the big things that I think one of these undercurrents is this idea that we talk about in the book uh, that characterizes really this ubiquitous presidency is accessibility. And accessibility in a essentially means the number of places where the president appears, where the president's voice appears, and in what ways are they trying to engage in some interactive back and forth. Now, when we initially started looking at this, um, one of the things we realized very quickly was accessibility does not necessarily mean that presidents will make themselves totally available to, for example, journalists uh, for questioning. In fact, that would that would kind of cut against one of their ongoing goals of message control. So one of the key things we see really with the past several presidencies, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, is different ways in which they have messed with press access. And so what that does is, um, and you might be thinking, how is this related to what you're talking about? What <laughs> that does is by not engaging journalists in the traditional formats that they do, journalists are then pushed to look for quotations elsewhere. And so with Donald Trump, journalists increasingly pull quotations from his tweets. And so we see him being able to control messaging, but also increase his visibility with journalists by giving, giving essentially journalists content through his Twitter feed. And now what that also does though is, and this is the danger, this is the danger of this approach. Um, and again, I make note, we make note in the book that really the past several presidencies have done this in various ways. Um, whether it's uh, whether it's a presidency going into more favorable media. Uh, so for example, Fox News, um, um, you saw George W. Bush and his administration doing that um, in some in some ways. You saw Barack Obama as well doing this. Um, they cut, his administration cut access to C-SPAN. And not only that, but by going into, for example, the comedy and late night programming formats yeah. um, that he did during his presidency, he guaranteed friendlier questioning. And the reason why is those are generally left-leaning audiences that are tuning into those types of comedy satire programs. So he guaranteed himself a friendly crowd. Um, Donald Trump has done similarly. We document in the book, for example, um, the number of interviews that he has given to Fox News throughout his presidency, and it's a lot. Um, so presidents do this, and what that does is that reduces the accountability mechanism by by which presidents are asked the tough questions. And so, again, I think your instinct to say that when did television or when did the news start covering Twitter? It really started covering these types of formats like Twitter or Facebook when pre when presidents and other politicians realized they could reduce access to the tough questions and just essentially put up snippets and snippets and tweet bites for journalists to pull for uh for their stories i i also wonder from the media side 
how much of it is affected by the tribalism there because in in a bygone era the idea of tonight a full hour no questions are are off the table bill clinton president bill clinton comes on bill o'reilly would be like a thing yeah. that i think certainly the bill o'reilly show would want to happen yeah now if if we're going to take the modern equivalent of that I don't know if, like, let's say a Rachel Maddow, for example, would want Donald Trump on. Like, I, I don't know if their audience would would want that or if they would yeah. think that that's a net win because maybe Maddow isn't tough enough and maybe that's something that, you know, they don't want a Jimmy Fallon tussling the hair moment, which sure. I don't think she would do, right? But that's a worst case scenario that people think of. Uh, I, I don't know if we even as the audiences scatter and tribalize that we want the same kind of interview or at least the audience would clamor for it. Right. This is one of the risks with the ways in which the media environment has balkanized people. This is one of the risks with a highly polarized society is we lose those accountability mechanisms and so even as late as the Obama presidency, Obama is going, Obama went on Bill O'Reilly. Barack Obama went on Bill O'Reilly during his presidency. Yeah. And that's actually one of the moments we document as one of his most visible um, and visible in terms of the um, the secondary media coverage that spins off from it. He created a lot of news. Barack Obama created a lot of news by going on Bill O'Reilly. So you do see those types of moments. In this particular presidency, in the Trump presidency, what you've seen is that the risk, obviously, is that then you get into a Donald Trump interview with Axios moment. Um, and so you there is tons of risk to message control there. There is also a lot of upside for the president as well as for the media outlet as well because they get a lot of visibility out of it. So I think to your question, and again, I won't want to speak for Rachel Maddow. Sure. But- um, I would think that they might actually jump at the opportunity to have the president on the show and have, um, and have a, almost like a Frost Nixon type of moment of conf confronting Donald Trump, putting him on trial, something like that, those types of things. Um, so I do think there would actually be. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know though. I mean, with, with all the conversation we have about platforming. Right. Yeah. And and the idea that you are if if the audience for Rachel Maddow and I don't think that this is too hyperbolic, but believes that Donald Trump is a criminal and a liar and is actively mm -hmm. poisoning the minds of America, then giving him airtime. I mean, I guess that that to me, maybe and let's separate it out from the television savvy of, of I'm sure the fine professionals of the Rachel Maddow program, including Rachel Maddow herself, and yeah. just say in general, it seems like now we have a much more media literate uh, populace if we're going to have conversations of, oh, no, don't book that person. Don't put that person on. Don't don't have that person on a podcast. Don't have that person yeah. on. Uh, 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 don't feature them on your website or the uh, you know the, a columnist that doesn't agree with where uh, the 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 baseline is of a meet of a of a newspaper or a magazine or something like that needs to be excised. 
I, I, I think that audience-wise, there is a pushback or repulsion, and, and there are uh, clearly uh, responses to that in terms of at least uh, the weird beast known as cable news, where yeah. you've seen the rise of like fact checks and, and stuff like that, not because the world of politics couldn't have stood to be better fact checked before now, but rather because the audience is so hungry for pushback because yeah. they, they dis they dislike the thing they're seeing. So they would like to see it disrespected before them. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thought. Um, I, I actually, um, I think your comment about whether or not this is a more media literate public needs some qualification and thought okay because one of the one of the concerns that we have as researchers and i think one of the concerns that any of us should have about the state of democracy and how voters and how individuals make decisions is that the ease with which people can find content that they agree with already and so it is this is an interesting kind of thought experiment to think about what would, you know, a progressive, a more progressive media outlet do if they given the opportunity to interview Donald Trump. And I think both, I think both would use it as means of marketing and ways of creating outrage uh, because both of those are inherently newsworthy and click worthy um, for the progressive media outlet and for, in this case, Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, if Donald Trump, you know, Donald Trump cut his brand on basically going up against people. And so if they can find a way to do that and spin that in their way, it, it would be it would be an interesting kind of movement on this. But one of the consistent questions I get from my students is, where do you go to get reliable information? Yeah. What are your media choice habits like? And so I've actually come up with like a little cheat sheet for myself that I can, you know, pull out very quickly and oh, say, this, this, is, this, this, this is something I get a lot too. So can you, yeah. can you share some of it? Yeah. So, um, first thing, first thing I do pretty much every day is I check the Associated Press. Um, I probably just got a collective groan out there from many people. Um, <laughs> but, um, and I, and I look at my students' faces when I immediately start with that. So I check a wire service. So either the Associated Press or Reuters, um, because the wire will give you the who, what, where, and when. Um, it will give you basically um, when I worked in when I worked in public relations um, and when when I worked in government many years ago. It's essentially you know the the wires give you the TikTok of what's going on. Yes. Um, and so, that is and that is that is the journalism TikTok, as in the thing that is happening you know minute by minute by minute, and not the platform that may or may not be banned from China. TikTok. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. No problem. Um, <laughs> so I check the wires first. Um, then probably then where I'm usually going is I'm going to a national newspaper. So I'm either going to the Times, I'm going to the Post, or I'm going to the Wall Street Journal. Um, and you know, then my students immediately perk up and say, "Wait a second, but aren't those like you know, isn't one conservative, isn't one liberal? You know, those types of things." I'm and I'm like. This is where we have to talk about the difference between the news section and the editorial section. And um, so in many ways, um, in many ways, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, their news sections will give you pretty close to the TikTok with some additional kinds of why things are happening, a little bit digging into why things are happening. 
Um, then I usually end with uh, looking at what's happening on what CNN's reporting, and then I look at either Fox News or MSNBC to get a to get kind of a little bit of a different perspective on what maybe on a different ideological look at the at the news would be talking about. Um, and then throughout the day, I'm monitoring Twitter. So again, this is part of what I do. So it's sure. yeah. second nature at this point. But I tell my students, you have to cross check your sources. The, the challenge with that is most people don't want to cross check their sources. They want to go to one source. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. One, one outlet, people, one outlet. Yeah. Yeah. People don't want, people don't necessarily want to take, and I get it. You know, most people aren't like you and me and really interested and get jazzed about politics. Um, and so that becomes a challenge. So then it becomes, okay, how do you prioritize the limited attention spans and limited time that people have in terms of where they direct them? So I tell my students, always start with either the Reuters or the Associated Press. Always start with a wire service. If you want the most basic what's going on in the world, that will be the most reliable information. I guess my, my thought is less the people that don't, care that much about politics because at the end of the day their decisions either going to be made before they even see who the candidates the, to vote for president or senate or their local situation are they just have a party and they've always had a party and they believe that and that's going to be that or they're going to make their decision five seconds before and and that'll be unaffected by the kind of sturm and drong and the narratives that we have drawn out and obsessed over for the last year and a half mm-hmm. the, the 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 issues that I think if if there is a corrosive element is the people that live to be excited about politics as the tribal warfare. Like, and, and then the media outlets for which that have grown up to feed that, which inherently I don't have a problem with, but if there is a moment that I do, uh, you know, find myself interacting with people, be it on Twitter or on the podcast, it's because, I am violating the orthodoxy of this kind of like a war chant, especially mm-hmm. at this time of year. Yeah. Elections are made to polarize people. That's, that's, you know, that's one of their goals. It's yeah. To polarize people Although to I guess, the- and then that's the problem. The problem is not that we're doing this now. The problem yeah. is that we've spent the last three and a half years doing it. <laughs> like now's when we're supposed to get angry with each other and scream and yell about our political opinions, at least in terms of tradition. Usually right. we have a three and a half year break where we all, you know, watch Seinfeld or something. Well, and 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 that's and that's I think one of the big things that this type of media environment does and this type of saturation coverage of the president does is we can't escape the president. And so by bringing the president into areas of our life that the president hasn't traditionally been, it does continue to stir up this sort of, you can't avoid necessarily those particular messages. Because again, the president is trying to find individuals who are opting out of the traditional political political, you know, uh, programming. We, we like to talk a lot about Fox news and MSNBC and those types of programs at night that are the ones that quote unquote, draw a lot of attention, but their audiences on any given night are only two or 3 million people. They're actually pretty paltry, um, compared to the local 
uh, network evening news that between CBS, NBC, and ABC at like 6 and 6.30 draw collectively about 20 to 30 million a night. And so this is, I think, one of the one of the key things that as a researcher I have to think about as well, which is where are the audiences for political information? And in recent years, particularly with a digital and social media environment, those audiences for political information are actually in non-political settings. All right. One last question for you, and then I'll let you go. Uh, I got this media theory and I want to see whether or not you as a researcher and a, a scholar can uh, can can see if it holds any water. I very much of a, uh, am a believer of our shattered monoculture, that me as a man in his uh, late 30s grew up in very much a monoculture. There, was, there were radio stations that mm-hmm. everybody listened to. There were television stations that everybody watched. There were newspapers that were ubiquitous. Now all three of those things have shattered. We all listen to different music. We all watch different television shows via streaming services. And we uh, newspapers have shattered into a million different pieces that have ricocheted around our media world. Mm-hmm. But there's one story that, A, still unites us exactly as much as it did in the past, probably more so because there's less competition. And that's politics. Politics mm-hmm. is still here. Politics still affects everybody. And politics is something that has only kind of evolved and gotten louder as the rest of our monoculture has sort of fallen to the wayside. Do you think that makes any sense in your mind? So I'd have to look, I'd have to look at the data. And in, in general, um, the data would suggest that if, Yes, in theory, politics affects everyone. In practice, many people don't realize that. Sure. So political knowledge is relatively low. Media literacy, again, relatively low and problematic in in many, many instances. Um, We would have to look, for example, at where do people go for information and are they searching for political information? So we know, for example, from traffic statistics that political websites are not necessarily the most trafficked websites. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure all of us can kind of think about what what websites online are probably drawing most people. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yes. The, yeah. So there's uh, there's that particular uh, component. In fact, uh, there is um, a great book um, um, uh, called uh, The Myth of Digital Democracies published in the late 2000s and actually documents some of this, which is that this kind of idea. And, you know, Justin, I'll say as a person of similar age, we grew up with this idea Yeah. that the internet of things and digital was really changing the way we understand politics. It was democratizing, it was bringing new people into the process and those types of things. Um, And the myth of digital democracy is published in late 2000s and essentially does what I just said, which is looks at traffic statistics and finds that most people aren't going to political websites. Even Even if they're there, most people aren't going with it. Now, I think in this particular moment when the president can be everywhere. Um, people are confronted with it more. Um, 
And so we have to think about just because people are, are being exposed to it doesn't mean they're engaging with the information. They could still be trying to switch the channel and those types of things. We see that as a potential kind of effect that that, that happens in these circumstances that people will just still try to tune out. But you do see the types of strategies that political figures are engaging in, campaigns are engaging in, micro-targeting being a good example of this, of getting down to the most granular level to target people with political messages. And so it still makes it very, very difficult to do these things. One other thing I'll say about this is it makes it, in a lot of ways, a very precarious time for democracy. Part of the reason why um, we talk about in the book about this tumultuousness nature of our politics right now. It makes it um, a very difficult moment because many individuals who have not been socialized to even look at political information, look for political information, understand what good political information is, are suddenly seeing it a lot. Yeah. And are, and are suddenly engaging with it in ways that could be problematic. Um, and we could think about disinformation and those types of things, but the challenge is it is it is a good kind of premise, and I do like your premise of thinking about this, that we are immersed in kind of politics. And what that means is the potentially dire consequences of that are that we have a population that um, hasn't had comprehensive civic education, hasn't doesn't have the tools to be able to navigate this environment, and political leaders are using it to their advantage. So the idea that you and I grew up with Justin and many of us in our age cohort did of this democratizing potential of the Davids taking out the Goliaths um, through digital and social media, um, thinking about like Arab Spring, the Iranian Revolution, those types of things. What we see now is we see political leaders striking back and using this immersion in our politics as a way to weaponize information. Um, and so large portions of the populace are exposed to political information and don't know how to navigate it in the ways that in the ways that maybe someone else someone else who might have some background would be able to. I would I would agree that it is the nature of politicians to weaponize information. Yeah. The idea that we can do it now as directly and it can spread as virally as it can and it can hit a populace. Uh, as emotionally as it does, I think is unique because the medium is still relatively new. But uh, yeah, the the ramifications of democracy itself, we will only be able to watch together. Uh, and that is because we know so much more about it. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Joshua Skako, an associate professor of political communication at the University of South Florida. His forthcoming book with Dr. Kevin Coe at the University of Utah is titled The Ubiquitous Presidency, the Presidential Communication and Digital Democracy in Tumultuous Times, which will be published by Oxford University Press early next year. Please go find uh, Josh on Twitter at Josh Skako, that is uh, S-C-A-C-C-O. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us, Josh. Justin, thanks so much for having me on. Really enjoyed the conversation today. And that'll bring us to an end uh, of our show today. A reminder, come uh, watch debate prep with us. Yeah, we're going to watch Joe Biden debate Paul Ryan 2020. 
12. This was a really good Joe Biden debate. We're, we are going to break down what I think is going to be a crucial element of what Joe Biden's going to need to do to have the best possible showing against such an unorthodox opponent as Donald Trump. You can join us on my Twitch stream, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. That'll start at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time. But before we get to that, we got to get to our Titanic $10 tier. So I would like to shout out Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, D-Laser, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam, Utah Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Vote Boneless Wings 2020, and Tally, Vote for Trump 2020, Martin uh, Government Unfiltered, Neil, Archie, Logan, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Jay Melius, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Wolf Brand Chili Scoop, Dustin, Brad, Richard, uh, Peter, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age Mike, Jim, The Jen, Ben and Ellen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen Summers, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? Well, quite simple. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. One dollar gets you that custom RSS feed to make sure, make sure you get all these episodes earlier than you would otherwise. Three dollars gets you the bonus episodes. Ten dollars gets you right at the end of this show. And then, of course, the donor class. I'll tell you what, magical things are happening with the donor class right now. I, 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 I don't dare speak of it uh, outside of our hollowed halls, but I mean, if you got some money, just saying, membership has its perks. Until next time, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young. Follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young, reminding you that some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this is the only show that dares to talk about still going in many ways it's gone better john f kennedy was about to do what he does best run for president and win a second term until an assassin's bullet killed the sitting president opening the biggest political power vacuum in modern history and everyone wants a piece of the action my name is Justin Robert Young, and in the new season of my political history podcast, Raise the Dead, we tell the epic tale of 1964. Race riots, vile television ads, a secret Senate sex den, and the most famous legislation to come out of Congress in a generation. Moments that have molded and shaped our modern political world. News dies and becomes history. But tonight... We raise the dead. Vicious, mean, uh, dirty, low-down stuff about uh, all this.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>